Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the esteemed Erica Bond Barbagaris, the jaunty Jen Pixelscapes Gagney, and the magnificent Michelle Shepardson. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Dee and John, and we're going to talk about player agency and how best to promote that in your games. Before we dive into the main topic, though, let's ask our Get to Know a Gnome question. What is the most outrageous thing that has ever happened in one of your games to derail a campaign? And were you the GM or the player? John, I'm going to start with you. All right. So uh, luckily, I was neither the GM or the player at the time, just a kind of hapless bystander in this game. And we were doing, uh, God, way back in the day, Monty Cook's Dungeon a Day. You know, he had a new dungeon room every single day. And so we were using that to, to fill in some dungeoneering stuff, right? Well, there was one part that was written as this explicitly evil, bad vibe giving off altar, right? And there was blood on it and there was like bodies around it. One of the other players who uh, likes to go off the rails fairly, fairly frequently, make the, the crazy kind of characters, decided that oh, this must be some important part of the dungeon, not just some set dressing, right? You know, so rather than kill these orcs that were fighting us, he knocks one out, drags it all the way back to the altar, puts it on the altar, reads off the magic words written in like infernal or whatever like foul language there was, and kills the creature on it. To the horror of the rest of the characters and the players, because. It wasn't like he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm that evil character. I'm a necromancer. I'm, I'm going to be doing this stuff. You know, he, we, we were all kind of playing. The, yeah, we're pretty lawful good, pretty, you know, neutral, pretty like, you know, standard party. And one of the people we're traveling with just sacrifices an orc <laughs> on this altar. Well, it was written in that you get powers from doing that, right? Like it, it was a thing. It just was sort of like... What did you do? I'm just activating the dungeon. All I'm trying to do is activate the dungeon. This has got to be giving us, like, o- opening something farther on. I think it's a required part of it, right? No! So, so okay. So the first time, mm. all, all, all right, that's okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you a little. After the fourth time? Four times? <laughs> four times with us being like, what are you doing? Why do you keep doing this? Like, you know, I'm, I'm not playing a paladin, but I'm squigged out. And if I see you do this again in character, urgh. and he just kept arguing and arguing. I'm just activating the dungeon. I'm just trying to do this. And, I'm just you know, playing it, my character. <laughs> did it work the what? first three times? Oh, no, it worked every time. We, he found different I mean, things. And, <laughs> I mean, it works so, the first three times. I mean, like, so, and that's, that's sort of the thing. On a, like, metagaming, like, hey, I can kill things here and bring and give myself, like, extra stuff. All right, I can see why you would do that. But then in the narrative, and in, in, are you a good character? Because your alignment should not be. And, you know. It was pretty wild. Was, it, it, it was a little, little squiggy, little weird. But the fact that the player didn't seem to get why we as characters and players had an issue with with the way he he approached it. So. How did the GM handle that? Because, I mean, the GM was, l- you know, to a certain degree, the GM was letting him do it. He the, the GM was trying to push back and was like, look, I can't let you keep doing this. Like, you can't 
do this. And it, it it was more an interpersonal issue, I think, with that player. We we switched campaigns fairly shortly after that. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it, it was a little like the the GM did everything he could to try to get the player to realize. Yeah. And it just wasn't getting through that place. Yeah. The, the G, it sounds like the GM was doing what he could without doing the pull the emergency brake, stop, and have an out of character conversation. And, well, and he was having out of character conversations. This was just in the days before X cards and, and session zeros and stuff like that were really in vogue. So. He was trying to enable player agency. He was. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to D. Let's hear your story. Uh,. It was the first game I ever ran. It was... Did I talk? I think I might have talked about this. It was a 3.5 game. First thing I ever ran. And I had this whole plot line where there was going to be... Like, the rogue was going to steal an ancient artifact from, like, underneath a paladin school. And then give it to his employer, who would then use it to summon... Would try to summon, like, a dark evil dragon. However, it would be incomplete, so it would be, like, a skeletal dragon... And it would be rampaging across, uh, trying to, like, get enough energy to be its full form. And the players would have to, like, go after it all responsibly and, like... But the guy grabbed the lockbox. Everything was good. He got up back to the first floor. And he's like, you know, I've been carrying this around for a while. I'm going to try opening it. And I'm like, dude, it's got, like, a DC 45. And there's like, there's no way you're going to do it. And I was like, eh, so let me try. He nat 20 it. So, you know... <laughs> Being the newbie GM I was, I'm like, okay, I guess you just automatically succeed, I, I guess. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. And then he opens it up to find a, I didn't even know what was going to be inside there. So I'm like, uh, it's a dark evil gem and it's whispering secrets into your mind. And it's like dark and it's telling you to kill everything and it's terrible. Maybe don't do that. And he's it was like, trying to activate the dungeon. Yeah, <laughs> he's trying to activate the dungeon. <laughs> and then he's like, okay, so I grab it. I'm sorry, What? <laughs> He touches the gem, whispering dark secrets into his brain. And I, I, I'm like, I'm okay. Okay, sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, and then I said, it fuses to your hand, kind of like as like a mini punishment thing. Like, these are your consequences. And so a paladin's rush in and be like, hey, what's going on? Because the alarm started tripping off because the gem got activated. And he looks towards them and he's like, okay, I'm going to activate it on them. I'm like, how, how do you think you're going to do that? It's like, I don't know. Insert, exert my will. So I had him roll a charisma check. I mentally put a very high DC again and he nat 20 it a second time. <laughs> and I'm like, fine. I, <laughs> I rolled on an expanded rod of wonder. I think I had like a thousand of them. And one of them was flesh to stone. And another one was disintegrate. And so. Yeah, he <laughs> he then later on went back to the person he was going to like, you know, sell like sell it to. He's going to give it back to. And it was a priest. He's like, oh, don't worry, I'll take it off. Don't, uh, I'll I'll fix everything. And then when the guy's back was turned, he, he raises his hand and is like, I'm going to shoot him with this. And I'm like, he is your quest giver. <laughs> he is actually the secret final boss. And he rolls, and he and he rolls. I, I don't remember what it was. An instant death effect. And I'm like, fine, fine. Here's my campaign notes, and it was my first campaign, so I'd written like 20 pages, and I pulled it up in front of the players, and I was just like, slipped it off the table. <laughs> oh man, 
it it was a good campaign afterwards, but it completely changed everything. For me, I was running, it wasn't my first campaign. I had been jamming for a little while. I decided I wanted to run a supers campaign. And I was still very enamored with the concept of the TV show Heroes, where it's like you just have a normal world and then these people with powers popping up. So I got clever and I basically, when I set up the campaign, I said, this might be a little too on point for the current situation that's happening in the real world. But I decided that there was a an, a flu that came across the country that affected, you know, very much like the Spanish flu of, of, of 1918. Whoops. It affected younger people. And certain people afterwards basically developed superpowers. So, you know, it was like all the players prior to the campaign starting, they'd caught this, they had it, they recovered, and then there was, you know, they started having weird things happen. So we played several different sessions. One of the players could talk to rodents, and he convinced an army of rats to do something for him with the promise of taking them to Waffle House afterwards. So that was where the waffles, waffles chant came from. Uh, They used half of a zombie as a compass to find their way back to the person that raised him. You know, it's a campaign that had a lot of really interesting, fun moments. But there came a point where I realized my players were smarter than I was because they started doing the epidemiology of what this catalyst flu meant for people developing powers and they start it, it, it you know wasn't anything that actually happened in game wasn't something anybody did but they started putting these clues together that I didn't even realize were there and basically started planning for the apocalypse because <laughs> with the number of people that had been infected and the number of people that would be developing powers They're like, the government will not withstand that. The government will fall because somebody's going to show up with the power to detonate a nuclear bomb in Washington, D.C. by themselves. (laughs) The world is going to fall into chaos. We need to start stockpiling now. And I panicked. I literally panicked because that was not the game I was expecting to run. (laughs) That was not the direction I was expecting that campaign to go. And I basically was like, I'm having too much busy work with work. I need to not run a campaign right now. Can somebody else run? And just never went back to it. <laughs> and none of the players understood. They they were like, what? That campaign was great. The characters were fun. Everyone was having a blast. And I'm like, yep. And your GM panicked because she didn't know what to do next. Having smart <laughs> players is scary. That's like a, that's a whole article in itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You have to learn a, a great degree of flexibility to to handle having players who are smarter than you. And often it's the less you plan, the more you can adapt to something like that. Like you just said, you had a whole thing planned, and when they switched off of it, you being a younger GM were like, ah, okay, I don't know what to do. Because I know that Angela of Now would be like, sweet, we're, we're going for a apocalypse yeah. prep then. Like you, you would have just like rolled with it and, and made mm-hmm. an awesome game. Yeah. So that brings us into our main topic, where we're going to talk about player agency, which refers to the level of control the players have over the game world. How much can they affect or change the world that their characters are in? Now, if you're playing a video game, we're used to being kept to a certain number of choices to stay within the bounds of the game's stories. But when you're sitting at a table for an RPG, 
You want your actions to matter. You want to be able to change the world your character is in it. At the same time, the GMs have done a lot of work for the games, so it can be incredibly frustrating when the player, as, you know, Dee explained with her example, when the players do something that tosses out hours of prep work. So let's talk about how to find the right balance here. <laughs> That's complicated. <laughs> I've, um, I've been, like, I was uh, informed by Matt. He told me about the Quantum Ogre, and I remember reading something about that before, and it sent me in, like, this downward spiral of reading about player agency all the way from articles back in 2002 and i'm like just to explain for our listeners the quantum ogre is i believe the concept is that your players have three destinations where the ogre could be that they need to find and defeat and the quantum ogre basically says it doesn't matter where the players go the ogre is going to be in the last location yeah yeah effectively so yeah, the quantum, quantum Ogre is essentially saying that if you have two types of GMs, one is a GM that's prepped a lot, and the other is the GM that improvises, and the script GM, like the, the, the prep GM, has determined which of three locations has a magical artifact and which one has an ogre. The improv GM may, at the day of the session, just decide that regardless of the one that you choose, the first one has the ogre. So regardless of the choices you make, you end up following a certain pathway. It, it's an illusion of choice, essentially. Now, to a certain degree, I don't really have a problem with the illusion of choice. You know, it, it's, it's, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are levels. Mm -hmm. And you know, your, your players' actions need to matter, but the players also need to feel their actions matter. So you as a GM can be flexible and slot things in in different places that work for what's happening, but you you can never do it in a way that makes the players feel like their actions don't matter. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so I, I have a whole thing out there called Island Design Theory that I've been writing about that idea, which is essentially that quantum ogre conundrum sort of thing. Like, if it is important to the plot for the, pl for the players to find the ogre, because that is, you know, an essential part... I don't care how they get there. You know, if they're if if I've kind of set up that the ogres behind the castle walls and they're like, we're going to go search in the forest, you know, OK, I can move the ogre to the forest and then reward the players in, in some way for for kind of their choice of how they tackle that. I think the problem comes in when you have a GM who does things like the players come up with a legitimate, reasonable way to avoid the ogre, but because mm, the right. GM prepped the ogre encounter, they forced the players to do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. called palette shifting, I think. It's like um, <laughs> you head west, or you could choose between heading west or heading east. They tell you west has a bunch of bandits, and you're like, okay, we're going to go east. And then you fight goblins, which are effectively the same thing and the same motivation. It's just right. the same fight. Yeah. And, and and that's where, you know, you are still kind of railroading, you know, in, in, hey, there's an ogre, you have to fight. That's one thing. Like, I prepped an ogre, you're fighting an ogre, compared to, hey, I want to declare war to get into this auction house. And then it's like, uh, tell me what you're doing. And this came from a, a player who had an idea to get into this auction house, and he spiffied himself up and, you know, said... I'm here to declare war on behalf of the Elven Nations. Uh, you're selling off Elven artifacts. And I was like, okay, that's really clever. 
here you go, I'm going to let you go in. Saying like, no, no, you can't do that, you know, would be that kind of bad side yeah. of rearranging those things. Yeah. I have some friends who have a, a gamer horror story from a con they went to many years ago where they jumped into a superhero game where the guy had made generic versions of Superman, the Hulk, Wolverine, a gadgeteer character that was not Batman, uh, and a couple of others. And the only characters he would actually allow to do anything were the punchy characters. So, ah. you know, the Wolverine character was only like, like the player would be like, I want to try this. And he's like, well, why don't you just, why don't you just attack him with your claws? I, I, I don't want to. I want to try and solve this problem a different way. And the GM just basically refused to let the players do anything other than hit things. He took away his agency. Yeah, which made it a very non-fun game. How do we, like, enable player agency? Because I know in reading, like, a lot of those articles that I was talking about are mostly written by the OSR community, and the OSR uh, community has, like, a very strong... The answer to the agency problem is just have a lot of tables. Just lots of tables. Just keep rolling over there. Because, like, you, you've... Because you can't preset what you're going to fight if you're literally rolling it in the spur of the moment, you know? I, I think, I think you know, if you take a look at some of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, they're all meant to be much more narrative and based on, you know, yes and or no but. Uh, and you have, to, you have to improv a lot. You have to think on the fly. And a lot of what you can do with those games is you, 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 you don't necessarily need to do, you know, the huge level of in-depth prep that somebody thinks you might need to do for like a D&D &D game. Just understand some general stats for adversaries and just pull them in whenever you need to. You can kind of adjust on the fly. I, I actually do that all the time with my D&D &D campaigns as well. I will prep a certain amount and I'll have the monster stats ready that I think I'm going to need. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm I'm flexible. If they figure out a way to avoid dealing with that particular monster, then that, you know, the stats are over there. I can use them some other time. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you know, one, one of the things that I have found is most satisfying for the players is when they've done something making sure they see the results and how that actually affected the world, mm -hmm. you know. At the end of every session for my last game, every player took notes, you know, and, and put them down at a bullet point and we sent them out. And I would actually take whatever they wrote up and use that as something I would introduce in the next one. Like if they defeated, you know, the evil prince, I would make up a little template uh, or a little uh, flyer of showing the, the prince in jail, you know, in like the newspaper so that they could Aww. be like, Hey, we did that. I, I that think, was I up. think on a small level, too, you can do that in each individual session. You, as the GM, are playing the world. You can have the world react to what the players are doing in the session. If a player does something that is really, really cool, you can add that reaction from people witnessing it or just that, you know, like, throwing a little bit of added extra flavor towards the player to kind of reward them for what they're doing. I've seen, I've, I've played with a fair number of old school GMs who just, they, they, they feel like that that's 
bad that's that that's like playing favoritism or something but i'm like not if you not if you do it for everybody you need yeah. to respect the competency of the characters unless you're playing a game where you're intending to have them be you know idiots and goofballs <laughs> respect well, but then, the competency then the fun of the is characters. not affecting the world yeah then the fun is just messing up the world not like affecting right. it or changing mm -hmm. it in some way my friend, uh, my friend Tristan, who has been running an ongoing campaign for us, one of the things I appreciated is he has an ongoing campaign world. We're currently playing a campaign. My character from the previous campaign is an NPC in this world, and I get to see how she has changed the world that she lives in. And I, oh my God, even if, even if you know, I'm not even doing anything, you know, hand, you know, making the decisions for that character anymore. It's still super gratifying to see, like, that's my character. My character did that. In uh, in my last campaign, one of the people got a deck of many things, and they pulled the the whatever card gives them a stronghold mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff. They just have to go clear it out. So uh, in this game, they're starting as this group in Eberron in Sharn, the City of Towers, and they're going to have this old wizard's tower that's theirs. Well, that character is going to show up to clear it out because he has the deck of many things deed for it from the old campaign. So, so one of my players is going to be like, wait, I have to choose between Nazim getting this or, or, or Jelkir getting this? Dang it. As a quick aside, I never really understood how the get a stronghold thing worked. When I first started playing and I drew that, I'm like, wait, does it just appear from the sky? It appears from the sky. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> As a slight tangent to our topic about, you know, giving your players agency, letting them change the world, I do have a note that I want to say for players. Don't be a dick. Don't just mess with the GM's world because you can. Respect the amount of work that your GM may have put into this game. I I ran I ran a game at a con, and it was it was a very linear adventure. It was an introductory campaign to oh, I can't remember the name. It's by Cubicle Seven. It's based on the um the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Anyway, it was a very linear adventure. It was meant to be introductory to the world and the the the, the setting and all of this. And I had one player who was just absolutely refusing to bite on any of the hooks. It didn't matter. Like the other players were trying to follow the breadcrumbs and, and you know get to the 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 adventure and all of that. And oh, lone wolf, lone wolf. Thank you, John. And you know they they got like to the town, which is supposed to be like the the you know not quite the midpoint, a little bit before the midpoint. And then they're supposed to leave and follow this caravan and find out what happened to it. And he refused to leave the town. Like, absolutely refuse, like, cat just digging in his heels and, I want to check this, I want to do this, what about this? And, like, I'm looking at the time and I'm like, there is no way these players are actually going to be able to get to where the module says they're supposed to find all of this and have their big final battle. So I basically changed it that the stuff they needed to run into was just across the bridge in a little town that was on the other side, you know, like, like within a mile of where they were. It's it's a really tricky thing because, you know, when it comes to player agency, there's a balance because I don't think a game can fully ex 
it has to exist with a bit of trust. My my prob yeah. my problem was is that like okay, so they get across the bridge, they find the stuff, they, they defeat the bad guys, everything's done. The other players are like, Yeah, that was fun, thank you for running it. And that guy goes, Yeah, that was fun, but this was way too much of a railroad. And I'm just like, <laughs> You have no idea how much I changed of this scenario to accommodate you futzing around in the village. <laughs> Yeah. You have no idea, you know, so it was like the fact that that player was like, oh, this is just too much of a railroad. You know, it's the, I gate, you know, his player agency made that module change drastically and the player had no idea and didn't see it. There's this quote from Futurama, uh, when you do things right, it often feels like you're doing nothing at all. <laughs> or often the God like part that. in the universe. <laughs> Yeah, so like GMs need GMs need to find the balance of being able to accommodate their players doing things they don't expect, also providing stuff for the players to do. You know, make sure that there is stuff for all of your players to have a moment to shine and, you know, do awesome things. But the players also need to have a certain degree of respect for what the GM has brought to the table. Yeah, so I was just talking a little bit about how there has to be a little bit of balance, because I don't think there's no adventure that exists without removing some degree of player agency. I'm writing an article about this right now, but there's this one enemy archetype I really like called the Juggernaut. Essentially, the one that is moving forward, they're invulnerable to most everything. And if you put that up against the players, and the player's main option like to uh, the main thought is to fight and it doesn't work and then the juggernaut like wipes out one a player in an instant that feels like you're being railroaded that feels like the removal of agency and honestly it is but if you have no if you have 100% player agency and you fully respect that you miss out on an otherwise really common and really cool trope you know yeah yeah, because that and that is such a hard thing to balance. Because like at one point, here's this juggernaut style enemy that will mess you up that you are not ready for yet. You could decide to go in and and TPK trying to take it down, you know. And if if I as the GM had intended for you to kind of run away, how do I? And and you're not picking up on that, or you're not going to back down. What should you do? Should you say, like, well, you've been warned, you know, or, or this is an unstoppable enemy. Keep going if you want and, and let them all TPK and figure that out. Or do you kind of like, hey, you know, do, do you railroad them to go run away? You know, like, and, and that's so hard because sometimes players do dumb things. Yeah, like, yeah. like it, it's <laughs> not the fight right now. Do, you, you're getting this, right? Yeah, no, I get but it. I, I like to share meta information as much as possible, like, depending on the type of game. You know, I'll, I will say, like, hey, y'all, this is this is a fight you may not be able to take, but I'll let you do it if you want to try. You know, I'll, I'll see what you can do. Because then they're kind of working on all levels rather than kind of like, it, maybe I'm not being good enough about giving out right. clues that, you know, this guy just ran through the garrison. Meh, the garrison's like a bunch of zero level NPCs. We're all level seven. We're fine. I actually had that really. <laughs> exact scenario happen in a con game once. It's like the whole scenario was set up that we were returning an artifact to the person that had hired us to go find it is we're sitting there waiting to go into his office to hand it over to him, a more experienced party arrives, you know, and, and the GM took great care in describing how competent they looked, how they were what we hoped to grow up to be, and all of this. 
And then they go in, they get to go in ahead of us because they're much more experienced, much more seasoned. And we hear and the, 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 or, the, the oracle character among us sees them get slaughtered in a blink of the eye. And that is supposed to be the moment that our characters go crap and run away. Uh-huh. But we have the combination of an idiot player playing the leader of the group and an instigator encouraging her to have her fighter run in and defend these defenseless adventurers that have just been slaughtered. I could <laughs> not get the other characters to leave. The GM is like throwing bennies at me as my character is going, no, we need to run. We can't beat this. We need to run. <laughs> And they would not leave. The GM even said flat out, he's like, okay, you have two rounds. What are you doing? And like first round, they all continue to try and fight. He's like, okay. He waves his hand. You've just, you know, like your character is thrown across the room and you have one hit point left. Next round, what do you do? They all continue to fight. And he's like, I'm sorry. You guys are all dead. Yeah. You guys were supposed to run away. Yeah. And like, he was trying to do everything he could to get the players to run away, but again, didn't want to take away their agency, so didn't. So that combination of the idiot player with the leader character, and then the person who knew exactly what they were doing and egging her on, you know, led to us basically paying for a four hour session and only getting 45 minutes of game. <laughs> I get it. I get that. Yeah. So, so Dee, I'm curious. You've been doing a lot of research, way more than I ever do for, for anything. Um, what, uh, what, what are the best techniques you found? Because I love hearing the names. I love hearing, like, the terminologies around this stuff. So what have you found that, like, helps player agency that other people are talking about? I don't have a specific name for these things, but, like, okay. So re rehashing this. I started with, I think, 14 articles, and <laughs> I've currently up to 30 and I'm only halfway through my initial list. Like every article I read has like three more links to other places. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it's a it's a rabbit hole of information. And I'm going deep. Um, we'll see you but... in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping. Uh, I, yeah. Um, but the main answer I really have at this point of time in which I have not fully read everything just yet. The main answer is honestly what the what you two said. Information. Like. The number one thing that enables player agency and keeps people with the juggernaut or uh, that enables you to enact the juggernaut is throwing as much information in world and out like meta wise in order to make sure the players are constantly making the most informed decision possible and that the decision that they're making is ultimately the it's the one that they've decided on. It's it there you have not pushed anything. You just told them everything. You've laid out your hand on the table and they're like, "I'm going to pick the TPK one." Okay, buddy. It like, may not be the best choice, but it's player's choice. You know, I I, I, I fully like again, I bring it back to respect the character's competency. I will <laughs> flat out say to a player, "Your character would know this." Your player would know that their player is being dumb. I got very angry at a GM in a um, kind of a spy, you know, horror spy game where I said, I think we need to call in a cleanup crew to basically deal with the aftermath of a fight we had had. And he's like, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, I think so. And what he was failing to tell me is in the terminology of that game, 
a cleanup crew meant come in and murder any witnesses. Not the sanitize the scene. Yes, and I'm like... Clean it all up, And I just, I lit into him, and I'm like, my character is an experienced agent. She would know the terminology. Just because I, Angela, don't know the terminology doesn't mean the character wouldn't. So, you know, there is a degree of, you know, if you respect the character's competency, you can kind of give the players more information that they would need. Like, if they're going to do something that is stupid and their character should know better, just give them a nudge, being like, hey, just, you know, your character would be aware of these factors or be aware that these consequences are likely to happen if you continue forward doing what you're doing. That this might be dangerous, you know? Yeah. Like, your character would have... And the way, like, yeah, and that would definitely be bringing it more into, like, the meta-narrative again, which is tricky because depending on your group of players, they may not want to access that at all. They might want to... <sighs> There's a balance. Um, <laughs> it's... You, you, you need to... You need to drop hints. A blog I was reading suggested you need to drop this three times, like, clues and such. Gumshoe actually does this really well because instead of dropping, like, Every like they have multiple areas and each area has a clue which is automatically processed by the players. The players don't have to search for the clue. They have this clue. You don't hide behind things because I think as Gumshoe says, your players aren't Sherlock Holmes. They're going to ignore the first clue, misinterpret the second, and then use the third one to make a leap of logic, even Superman can't jump. Like Yeah. Drop clues constantly, throw as much information as possible, and regardless of the decision, try to respect it, even if it, like, okay, so my personal, um, my personal, like, uh, example here was my GM at the time, my 3.5 campaign again, there was a pool of lava where there was a statue in front of it holding their hands out, like, like, it was cupped in front of them. I mentally interpreted this as like the diving pose. And I kept suggesting, what if my player jumps in uh, to become, because we were trying to become immune to lava. Like, it's obviously the magical thing. You're activating the dungeon. I'm diving. That's a diving pose, right? And the GM told me like a couple times, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? God dang it, D, are you sure? And I'm like, Okay, wait, I think I'm starting to get a hint that I, should, I shouldn't be so sure. And then when he described it more, they then sent me a picture being like, it looks like this. Oh, it's cupped it like a cup, not diving. <laughs> we Generally speaking, the GM, the GM question, are you sure? Sure. Is a really good <laughs> sign that what you're about to do is probably not a good idea. It was one of the first campaigns I was like playing in and I'm like I, yeah. I didn't know about that just yet. Perfectly oh, reasonable. Oh yeah, and like and, and and when you have new players at the table, they don't understand the tropes. They don't necessarily know. I ran uh I ran The Minds of Fandelver for my my friend's three children and Aww. they like after the first initial encounter with goblins at the entrance they uh they they they're like okay we're gonna go in and we'll split up we'll cover more ground if we each go down a different <laughs> corridor and i'm like oh, no. i'm like lorelei your your cleric oh your your wizard only has one hit point right now and she's <laughs> like yeah and i'm like so what happens if you run into anything that wants to fight you 
Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like they it's like lit up and look for clues, gang. <laughs> and and you know that that's why one of the one of my favorite things in gaming has been, you know, what what fate kind of put into it with fate points and, and plot points from the old Cortex system. I'm going back on all my old Grognard ways, but but you know, all the all that stuff that happened around the early two thousands with like, hey, you can spend this currency and just modify this thing or or buy it. Like I, I think that's the ultimate way to tell the players you do have the agency to do this. You you can make this thing happen. And I think that fills in for for that lack of knowledge sort of thing. Like, you know, Angela isn't a, you know, investigator in, in real life that we know of unless she's really, really deep cover. <laughs> um yeah, you could be. You could be a, an asset. Um yeah, let's not talk about that too much. Uh but like if if you hadn't known what that meant and you went into it and said, oh, wait, I didn't want everybody killed. Can I spend a plot point to say this, like, that I knew that in the past? I, I think it kind of helps you have that reset yeah. button when you're not picking up on the you shouldn't dive into lava sort of clues. <laughs> and, and you, as, and as a GM, oh you God. can have limits on what your players do with those. You should You should allow for as much as possible. But if a player wants to do so, because I have told players no when they start trying to modify the game in ways that are against what I'm trying to do with whatever the game is. I um I had a player in a Tales from the Loop game. Tales from the Loop doesn't have that Benny system, but players are encouraged to, you know, help offer descriptions for things. And the players were dealing with a little tiny robot that was stealing energy from things and eating cords and stuff like that and they're in their bunker their their clubhouse and it's trying to run away and the player goes somebody rolled to try and catch it and they they missed and the player's like and it runs down this hole and i'm like no it doesn't it's like you don't get you, you i understand what you're trying to do but let me finish my description first and then we can see if you guys want to try and modify it. So it's like you can mm-hmm. put some brakes on players who are going a little too far with, you know, because I needed them to catch this. You know, so having it run down a drain and disappear was not Good. what needed to happen. So it's like that player wanted that to happen because he thought it would look cool, but he was also kind of playing his own game. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, it's kind of ironic, but. In a way to encourage freedom, you have to limit options. Wait, I feel like I quoted this from something. I know one of the articles said this. Oh my god, I'm, I think I'm just <laughs> quoting verbatim at this point. I think they said, you have to give them a meaningful set of tasks so they can make choices between them or say no to all of them and make their own decision. Uh, but if you tell them, do whatever you want, the excessive freedom limits their own agency because all of the choices almost feel meaningless because like they have to like come up with every bit of it they're telling the story at that point not you building the rest yeah of them that's, to interact that's with. part of why i don't like true sandbox games yes yes sandbox i i want there to be some kind of plot i want there to be some kind of story happening that these characters are involved with and i find with sandbox games Nothing matters because, oh, you just wandered away from the story, so, well, now something new is happening. And 
I still want there to be that cohesive... I'm a storyteller. I want the game to be a story, whether I'm a player or whether I'm a GM. And I want the players to affect that story. I want the players to be deeply involved in that story and determine the outcome. But I don't want to feel like I'm just sitting in a sandbox and can just go wherever I want. There was an example, and uh, there wasn't. Uh, there was a really good example of that of the sandbox and how that works concerning story and agency. It's tricky, but essentially, the consequence. Uh, another way to handle player agency. And to make all of the choices meaningful is to throw consequences at them. Co- like one example was there was a bunch of colonies on a uh, on a series of beaches, and part of the main plot line was one colony was wiped off from the face of the map, and the players were like, and the and the players had a bunch of leads and hints to suggest to go over there in order to look at it. And in game, eight months had passed, and they finally go check it up, and they find leads, and they completely decide to ignore it in order to go randomly in other directions and find treasure. And then four months later, as the year had passed on, they then heard rumors that a second colony was completely wiped off the map. And the players were upset at this, being like, hey, what the heck? Why this happen? But it's because of their inaction to follow the major plot line that then caused that second thing, because they made you gave them all the uh, information you gave them all the choices that they had and they decide to make a different decision and in order to make that choice meaningful i.e the inaction you have to deliver the consequences as starkly as possible now see as a player i would still be upset with that gm if there weren't like if one we made the decision to go off treasure hunting because the clues we found didn't really seem that important and treasure hunting seemed like it would be more interesting, and the GM just let it happen without doing any sort of emphasis on what we were abandoning, and if the GM gave no clues along the way that there was something more portentous happening elsewhere. Like, that I mean, that's what I'm talking a... about I don't like about sandboxes. I mean, there was, like, the whole, you know, colony being wiped off the face of the map, and if they'd, like, looked at other plot threads you know, divination, cleric spells, showing evidence to people and, and like and exploring that, the thread. There's also a certain degree of me going, maybe those players didn't want to play an apocalyptic game. They just wanted to go find some treasure <laughs> and hunt some monsters. And that's perfectly fair, but the apocalypse would still be like happening without them. So so there's something that I take away from sandbox style video games that that greatly influence like how I run things. So Skyrim, you know, I love playing Skyrim and I think oh, I've absolutely. touched Yeah, I've touched the main plot once because what I do when I play Skyrim, I have a mod called Live Another Life or something like that that starts you in a random place, you know. So I build my character, they start in a random place with a random set of stuff, and then I look around and I go, "Huh." Why is this person here? What's going on? And and one of these, it started uh, the young female caster character that I made in this, like, bandit's nest. I'm like, huh, why is she here? What's going on? I'm like, well, maybe she was kidnapped because she has some incredible magical ability, you know, and so that's why she kidnapped. And then, then I kind of, like, in my head, wrote the meta narrative on my own, and I didn't care about, you know, Skyrim's plots. I didn't brush up against that. And, and how that, I think, translates to tabletop role-playing games is, like Angela said, if the players were more interested in the treasure hunt, sweet. I, as the GM, have the ability, unlike in a video game, 
to take that meta narrative and emphasize it. Like, you know, hey, there has to be some consequence. Like if you've dropped every single hint that that aliens are coming to blow stuff up and they don't deal with it. Yeah, that colony gets blown up. But maybe it's like, hey, you're going on this treasure hunt. And in this thing, you have found the MacGuffin that can help mm. fight off the aliens, you know, like may- maybe yeah, I still have this alien plot I want to play, but let's make that treasure hunting a so much more important part of the meta narrative in that, you know, sort of thing. You can always switch those, those elements around if the players don't know about them yet, like if they haven't kind of solidified, but it, it is one of the downfalls of sandbox games, you know, well, what am I supposed to do? whatever i want that's important right like people want to be part of the big world saving story in a lot of ways or or the big important story in a lot of ways so i think you have to you know give them that satisfaction whether it was you know intended at the beginning and we're back to this whole balance thing it's all about balance (laughs) and i will also say as gms there are times we put clues on the table and the players don't realize it There are so many times where I have thought I have clearly given players information that is important to stuff that is coming down the line, and then the next session I realized that that information didn't even register with the players. Like, they were more caught up in dealing with other things, so that's on me to make sure that, you know, I re-emphasize certain information or clues or points, because if I have a big thing I want to have happen... I can't just have an asteroid land on the city and say, well, you guys missed all the clues I gave you. And them being like, what clues? It like, it makes sense to us because we're the GMs. We were the ones, we know the ending and we know how it all like threads together. But as I was saying earlier, the players aren't Sherlock Holmes. You know, you kind of have to like, even when I make puzzles, I always dial it back a titch because they're going to interfere with each other more than I can interfere with them. So one of the things that I I have pulled from video games again, because, you know, during pandemic times, I'm, you know, playing a lot of video games, but, but the journal feature in video games, the main quest and side quest, I am actually using uh, Google Keep and Trello to give that to the players and, and actually denote it. So, you know, I have one column that says main quest and has like, they can add in their own clues and stuff they found or, you know... Jorgen wants you to go follow up on this, speak to people around town to find out what you need, you know, because, and, and this is the way I give them player agency, like, yeah, cool, just just like in Skyrim or like the Grand Theft Auto sort of games, you know, the big open worlds was the two biggest I can think of. Oh, wait, what was I supposed to be doing? I've been, I've been off doing all this other stuff and following up with this contact and chasing chickens to get them back for, you know, but like if there's a, this is our side quest and I put that on the card. later. <laughs> yes, 26 side quests later, they come back to the main plot. If they don't find the, you know, other outpost blown up, oh yeah, we're supposed to go talk to people about that. You know, it, it kind of gives them that meta ability to say, what were we doing without like, you know, it, it categorizes it. So they're like, yes, this is what we have to do for the main quest compared to these side quests, you know? And, and I, I haven't tested that yet, but I'm really excited to see what they think about it. And hopefully it's not like, that was dumb, John. <laughs> so are, are, are we sure we don't have a Phil Vecchione in this episode? Because we have gone long. We have gone long. We're, we're, we're a wee bit long in the tooth, but we that's should, fine. We should probably start <laughs> wrapping up. Any last words on player agency before we get out of here? I believe uh, player agency 
is important, but it becomes more important the more you limit it, in a way. I'm going to talk about that a lot more in various articles. I'm I'm like two or three articles now about player agency because it's such a big topic right now. (laughs) But player agency becomes more pronounced sometimes the less you you have it sometimes. And we'll get into more of that later. I, I would say definitely make use of whatever meta tools you have. Aside from being just an excellent safety tool, the X card, and maybe even a smaller version of it, like the not that interested in it card, you know can help you you determine what you know what's going on like yeah this isn't like triggering but man i'm not really i I don't really care about intrigue games like you know but that also comes in in discussions outside the game and i think those are important to have you know ways for the channels of communication to be open so you can understand what makes a fun game because i think that's what it all comes down to are the players having fun that that's what you're aiming it doesn't matter how much you want to run a courtly intrigue game if your players are stressed out and just want to go delve into a dungeon and hunt some monsters. Yeah. I, I, I want to play a pub game, drink beer, roll dice, kill monsters. We good. Yeah, yeah. In, in the immortal <laughs> words of Dr. Angela, who I used to game with, is it dead yet? <laughs> so, this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website, Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by... The player agency, when you TPK a few many times, we've got you covered with fresh new players ready to go. Wait, wait, you don't actually make the players leave when you kill their characters? Huh, maybe we need a business model. So, if you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. The Lounge. Doc finds the best, the brightest, the most fun game designers and sits down to have a cool chat with them. You never know what conversation is going to come up in The Lounge. You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. D, where else can we find you? DiceQGM on Twitter, D-I-C-E-Q-G-M. I have like a card now, a C-A-R-R-D, which links, links to everything else. <laughs> John, how about you? I can be found in parking lots feeding crows most days. That's that's kind of my new hobby. Uh, but a- anywhere you can find good John Arcadians, bartered or sold, or even mediocre ones. <laughs> Just look up John Arcadian. You will find me or my doppelbro. Your doppelbro. How about you, Ange? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as orikes13, O-R-I-K-E-S-13. Though, as always, I will warn, Instagram is mostly just pictures of the cats. So... Do you think we gave ourselves enough agency to avoid the stew this week? I don't know. There are two head gnomes here, and D's the only one who's not a head gnome. So the question is, did D avoid it? Mm. I think I'll I think I'll be fine, yeah. and uh, we'll see about making that third one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so long as she keeps trying to activate the dungeon. <laughs> Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Wait, sh- should I move on with this or you move on? Okay, okay, okay. Um, so, yeah. Hey, so- we send it up. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. <laughs>